Hi, this is Alan Chartok. Joining us today is Linda Marsa, an award-winning Los Angeles-based investigative journalist who has covered medicine, health, and disease for more than two decades. She's a contributing editor at Discover Magazine, was formerly the staff writer for the health section of the Los Angeles Times, and is the author of Prescription for Profits, How the Pharmaceutical Industry Bankrolled the Unholy Marriage Between Science and Business. Her new book is Fevered, Why a Hotter Planet Will Hurt Our Health and How We Can Save Ourselves. Blending compelling personal narratives with cutting-edge science, Marcia provides a detailed blueprint of what we need to do to protect ourselves from this oncoming medical meltdown along the macro to micro spectrum, from national-level policies to individual precautions. Renowned environmentalist Bill McKibben says, there's nothing abstract about climate change. As Linda Marsa makes clear, it's already reshaping the world in which each of us lives and not in healthy ways. Linda Marsa has been an instructor for more than two decades in the writer's program at UCLA Extension and was named Teacher of the Year in 1999. You can read more at www.lindamarsa, that's L-I-N-D-A-M-A-R-S-A dot com. Linda Marsa, welcome. Thank you for having me, Alan. So, Linda, uh, I, I want to talk to you about this very beautifully laid out book, Fevered, Why a Hotter Planet Will Hurt Our Health and How We Can Save Ourselves. Let's start at the beginning. How is it going to affect us and how are we going to save ourselves? Well, when I first started writing the book, I had seen this report in The Lancet, which is, you know, the very esteemed sure. medical journal. And it said that the greatest threat to public health in the 21st century is going to be climate change. And that really sort of took me aback because, you know, we saw the melting ice caps and, you know, the starving polar bears. But I, you know, it never really occurred to me that this was also going to affect our health. And as I sort of drilled down, I, I found that what happens is as it get hotter, ecosystems change and it creates, you know, sort of a, a chain reaction effect. I, you know, I don't want to trip over all these cliches here that, you know, changes the ecosystems in ways that we really can't predict. For example, you know, as the temperatures get hotter and as places get warmer, um, mosquitoes migrate to newly warm habitats. Mm -hmm. So suddenly we're seeing dengue outbreaks here in the United States. You know, that, so that's just one example. Now, what's dengue? You have dengue fever and dengue hemorrhagic fever, and it's mosquito-borne illness that, you know, most of the time just flu-like symptoms and you feel pretty awful, but then you recover, although we don't have any treatments for it and we don't have a vaccine. But the problem with dengue is that if you get it twice, then you get the hemorrhagic fever, which is, you know, the stuff that we've seen in the movies where you bleed internally and then most of the time it causes, you know, mortality. So, you know, we're seeing these types of exotic diseases that were sort of exiled to the tropics and to developing countries that are starting to crop up. You know, we had a, we're having a dengue outbreak right now as we speak in Florida, and there was a, a focal outbreak in Texas. And so, you know, what you see is that dengue is sort of pushing, battering our, our southern borders. And the other piece of this, and, you know, as a science writer, I kind of study this. You know, I, I just did a, a story on the migratory patterns of the Aedes albopictus mosquito. And, you know, before you all fall asleep, <laughs> and the reason why this is important is that this mosquito can transmit yellow fever. It can transmit dengue. It can transmit three different types of encephalitis. 
And the Aedes albopictus mosquito arrived here from Japan in Houston in 1985. Well, there was a study that just came out a couple months ago. It's in Connecticut now, and by the end of the century, they expect it in Maine. So the, the point is that you have what's called disease vectors, like mosquitoes, that are able to carry these diseases, and you get bitten by them, and you can get these exotic diseases that, you know, we haven't seen here in decades. And West Nile virus is a really perfect example, unfortunately, of this. You know, West Nile, as the name implies, was first discovered in Uganda in, you know, the late 1930s, you know, in the West Nile district of Uganda. And, you know, there were different sort of low-level focal outbreaks in northern Africa and Israel and places like that, but it was sort of contained in that area. Well, somebody from Israel during an outbreak came over to visit some relatives in, you know, northern Queens, actually in Whitestone, the town where I grew up, and they got bitten by a mosquito, and then that's what they believe, and, you know, the CDC, you know, the way they sort of track this, and then the mosquito spread it, and and then, you know, in 2002, where we had, the, you know, again, these torrential rains and then very hot temperatures so that the mosquito populations exploded... Suddenly, West Nile was across the United States, and now it's endemic here in the United States because there's a mosquito vector that's able to transmit it. So, you know, this is just one example of the different aspects of health that are going to be affected by climate change. But when you say, you know, that if it gets warmer, uh, we don't have vaccines, for example, for one of these or another, isn't that the challenge to medicine that in the past they've always come up with the vaccine or they've always come up with the answers? Well, sure. Absolutely. And people are working on vaccines. People are working on dengue vaccines. We have a yellow fever vaccine. So people are working on them. Right now, at this moment, we don't have them. And until we do, people, you know, there's no way of really sort of inoculating people against it other than, you know, taking precautions. And the other piece is that what I did find when I started researching the book is that maybe on a national level, they're sort of debating whether climate change is real. But on a local level and, and with the public health people, they're not debating. They see what's going on and they've really been taking steps to try and do things about it. And the CDC has really been the Center for Disease Control, which monitors disease outbreaks, is really trying to beef up its surveillance network so that they can be aware of when these disease outbreaks occur so that they can jump on it right away and institute different programs to prevent the outbreaks from spreading. So there are positive things, but still in all, I mean, people get bitten by mosquitoes. Now with the West Nile, oftentimes you don't get really sick, but occasionally you can get really sick. It does neurological mm -hmm. damage. People are die and they end up in long-term nursing facilities. So it's not an innocuous type of infection. So in your book, you talk about fever pitch. What do you mean by that? Well, that's what I talk about is sort of the spread of, you know, these infectious diseases that we haven't seen anymore. You know, we have Lyme disease now in Canada. Now, Lyme disease, obviously, is the name implied. I mean, I'm not sure that this is exactly where it started, but it was first identified mm. in Lyme, Connecticut mm. in the 1970s. And, you know, I'm always reluctant to say that that's where it started because we, we don't really know, but that's where it was first identified. But it's now in Canada. So you can see that the tick has migrated that can carry Lyme disease now can survive in these northern climates. The other piece of this is that, you know, as the summers are hotter, 
mosquitoes are surviving these much milder winters. And then in the summer, they can replicate themselves twice instead of once. So do the math. You know, there's twice as many mosquitoes. You know, and then the other piece is that they stay infective longer. In other words, when they bite you, they can transmit these infections longer. Plus, the pathogens themselves, you know, like the dengue pathogen, or the different things that, you know, sort of live on these mosquitoes that the mosquitoes transmit, they're able to replicate themselves and become mature faster because of the warmer weather. So the warmer weather is sort of an incubator for these infectious diseases. And, you know, there's all different kinds. You know, they're, they're worried about an outbreak of this, I can barely pronounce this, it's called chunkingaya, and it's endemic in Southeast Asia, and it causes arthritis-like symptoms. And what, what one uh, public health person told me, it won't kill you, but you wish you were dead, <laughs> you know, which I thought was, you know, one of these public health jokes. But basically, they're worried about it coming here because now we have this Aedes albopictus, which can carry chungungaya here. And again, it could be a scenario just the way it happened with West Nile. Somebody comes in with chungungaya, they get bitten by a mosquito, and suddenly it's endemic here in the United States. That's what happened in Italy. I guess about 10 years ago, somebody from India, you know, visiting a relative in Italy, was carrying it, got bitten, and now it's endemic in Italy. It doesn't take long. No. Uh, tell me about our national defense structure. We have the state local health agencies. We have the federal groups who are looking at all of this. I take it in doing your research that you talk to all of these folks. Are they frightened? Well, I don't think frightened is the right word. You know, they're scientists and they're people who are used to dealing with crisis. So frightened isn't the right word. I think concern would be a better way of putting it. The CDC has really been right out in front on this. As I mentioned before, they've been really beefing up their surveillance networks. And I'd like to sort of break down what that means. You know, you throw out sure. these phrases. Well, they're beefing up their surveillance networks and people have no idea what the heck you're talking about. So they're doing several things. The first thing is that and I didn't know this until I became a medical reporter, is that the CDC has a person, a CDC person, in every major department of health across the country. And they're part of what's called the Epidemiological Intelligence Service. And they're sort of like the medical CIA. And That's so how that epidemiological, meaning how disease progresses or spreads. Yes. Yeah. And they watch it. And what they do is they monitor outbreaks. So what happens is, you know, and I'll use West Nile as an example because it's a good way of sort of illuminating how all this stuff happens. But what happened initially in West Nile is that there was this hospital in Flushing that got four cases of encephalitis. And very unusual to have that, even one in a year and to suddenly have this cluster of four cases. So the signal goes up. You know, they send a notice to the public health department that this is happening. And then the public health department lets the feds know. So you can see how all of this stuff is operating. And then it goes into, you know, their computer bases. And then they start seeing, are there other outbreaks in other parts of the country or in other hospitals in that area? And that's how they really sort of surveil and monitor outbreaks. So that's one way that they do surveillance, and they're beefing up these networks. They're adding people, they're adding computer programs, things like that, to make it so that they're easier to identify. The other piece that they're doing, which is, you know, again, this is really sort of this complicated inside baseball stuff, but they're making a broader range of diseases reportable. Now, here's what I mean by reportable. Mm. You know, your average physician doesn't see dengue hemorrhagic fever. 
They have no yeah. idea what it is. You know, somebody comes in, they've got fever, chills, you know, they think they have the flu. And then suddenly, you know, they have dengue hemorrhagic fever. Now this is reportable. It wasn't in the past. You know, somebody would get a case of dengue and that was it. They wouldn't say anything. But now this is reportable. So then, you know, you, a doctor calls up the public health department and says, you know, I've got this really wild case, you know, of dengue fever. You know, I just want to let you know this is happening. And again, this is another way that they're they're beefing up the surveillance networks. And they're making a longer list of diseases that are reportable so that we can keep track of these. And, you know, to get back to the example of West Nile, when West Nile hit in 1999 in New York, the public health people, the CDC, they had no idea what they were dealing with. And, you know, there was a congressional investigation later on in 2000 of the outbreak. And there was kind of a breakdown in communications, which the CDC really learned from. And because of the breakdown in communications, they didn't really identify what it was until maybe a month out. And if they had identified it earlier, lives could have been saved. Now, who would you go to? Would you go to the emergency rooms, who were the first sort of responders on this stuff, with the healthcare being so specified now, you know, epidemiologists, or you have, you know, lung guys, you have feet guys, and the GPs, the general practitioners, don't always know everything. So how do you get the word out? Well, I think that this is what the CDC has been doing, and doing alerts, and making these reportable diseases. But to whom does it go? I don't know that my doctor would know the first thing about dengue if I walked in there with it? Well, that's the problem is that doctors don't. So what they're doing, for example, this is a good question. What they're doing, for example, in border areas is that they're having classes with doctors and really trying to teach them what the symptoms are of these different diseases. And this is really, you know, sort of really drilling down on the general practitioner level of really showing doctors, look, you have to report this. If you see this kind of stuff, just report it. Make sure that these people get these kinds of tests so we find out what's going on. And then it's reported into these databases in the public health departments in your local city, and then it's transmitted to the CDC. So that comes up on these databases that are monitored. Did that answer your question? I hope I don't want to... No, no, no. It was an attempt at an answer. I'm not quite sure. (laughs) I'm not quite sure I believe it. That it, it's not that I think you're lying to me. It's that no, no, no. It's that I think this is a very difficult sell to doctors. You know, doctors don't make the money that they used to. They're making, you know, some of the GPs are making a hundred thousand dollars a year, hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. It's not right. The specialists are making a lot more, but they're all very, very busy. So when you say bring yes, them all I into a, bring them all into a room and you know in a seminar and tell them, I don't know how successful one can be at that. Well, I can't really comment on that. I'm not down there watching what happens, but there's only so much you can do. You know, I have a 17-year-old, and I tell him, you know, don't smoke marijuana. I can't be watching him, you know, 24-7, but this is what you do. You know, you try and educate doctors, and, you know, the other piece of this, Alan, in my experience is doctors are really dedicated people, and they really want to make sure that their patients are okay, and, you know, if you tell them, look, your patients are, especially in the border areas in Texas, and we have an outbreak of dengue right now in Florida— you know, you tell the public health people, look, this is happening. They're going to be on the lookout mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. As long as you really have access to them. And I'm sure the, the Center for Disease Control at CDC, as you say, has the ability to reach out on a number of different levels. But the book combines not only the specific health issues, but it also deals with the climate crisis. So your piece of this is to say, OK, we got a climate crisis, but 
as a result, we're going to get different diseases. And, yes. uh, and you've talked about the dengue. What else you got? Well, the multiplicity of things that we're going to become more susceptible because the temperature is heating and the ecosystems are changing are just mind-boggling. And I tried to, you know, for example, I, you know, I came across a study that said, you know, the ozone layer is going to thin because the temperature is heating up because we're going to have more fluorocarbons in the upper atmosphere. And so the people are going to be more susceptible to skin cancer. Mm. I, you know, so th this is, a, you know, the kind of thing. But I tried to focus on four key areas that seem to be the most problematic. You know, the first one was the spread of infectious diseases, different types of infectious diseases. How are you the defining, second, how, I'm just for a second, how do you define an infectious disease? A disease that can be spread by a vector, okay? And what I mean by a vector is something that carries a disease, you know, that carries a disease pathogen, you know, the bubonic plague. You know, that was carried by rats. Mm -hmm. um, Lyme disease. Lyme disease is carried by ticks, and ticks, you know, live on deer. This hantavirus pulmonary syndrome that we had that big outbreak last yep. summer at Yosemite where two people died and thousands of people were exposed. That is spread by deer mice, and we're going to be seeing more outbreaks of that. And the way that that works is that in climate change, we're going to have changing weather patterns. So we're going to be having more droughts followed by torrential rains. So what happens with the droughts is that it kills off all the natural predators to these deer mice. And then you have these torrential rains that creates all this food for the deer mice. So the deer mice population explodes, and suddenly, you know, there's more to transmit this hantavirus. Now, what is the predator, the natural predator to a deer mouse? All different kinds of predators, you know, coyotes. And why do we think that that's going to happen? We've got them. In, I live in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. We've got coyotes all over the place. And I'm sure. one, so, so in other words, I'm not sure that we can all buy the fact that we're going to lose all these, these so-called predators. Well, it's not so much that we're going to lose the predators, but, you know, when there's a drought, you know, everybody suffers, including the deer mice. And then suddenly, you know, you have these plentiful rains and, you know, the, it creates all this vegetation and they have lots to eat. So the populations explode and then they can, you know, spread this, say, hantavirus pulmonary syndrome. OK, so that's area one. What do you okay. got for area two? So this is, you know, sort of the spread of infectious diseases. The second, you know, big piece, and this is actually, to me, probably the more insidious one, is respiratory infections. Mm. Because, you know, we're dumping, <laughs> this is just a staggering figure, we currently dump 31.6 gigatons of CO2 a year into the atmosphere. And, you know, I have a hard time getting my arms around what that means. You but certainly gigaton, would unless you're a very big person. <laughs> Right. Anyway, a gigaton is one billion tons, which is equal to about twice the mass of all seven billion people on Earth. Twice. Mm. So that means that 31.6 gigatons is more than 60 times the aggregate weight of every person on the planet. And we're dumping this into the atmosphere every year. So what we're having is that we're having all this carbon dioxide in the air. What does that do? I mean, it creates worse and worse air, you know, and there are parts of the country, right now, the carbon CO2 parts per million are about 400 parts per million. But there are in some parts of the country where you have 500 parts per million, even 600 parts per million, which is what we're going to see in the next 20 to 30 years over large swaths of the country. And what happens is you get these carbon domes over 
you know, cities. And, you know, we see carbon domes now over Salt Lake City. You know, we see carbon domes now over California Central Valley. What's a carbon dome? A carbon dome is, you know, sort of these toxic clouds that collect, you know, and sort of sit there, these stagnant air masses. We used to get them in Los Angeles, and we will again, unfortunately, that these stagnant air masses that sit on top of the area, and it's very hard to get rid of them. And there was a 2010 Stanford University study that found that these carbon domes act like pressure cookers, and they exacerbate pollution's harmful health effects. And they sort of calculated that the health effects of these carbon domes may already be responsible for up to a thousand excess deaths across the country. And that's going to get worse as we get more CO2 in the atmosphere. And what the carbon does, I mean, it's very well documented that the more CO2 in the atmosphere, the more respiratory infections you get, the more asthma. And then it becomes sort of this feedback loop because sunlight cooks all these particulates in the atmosphere and it creates ozone smog. And the ozone smog is what's really very difficult for the lungs. And, you know, they looked at a place like California Central Valley, which really does have just terrible air. I mean, if you drive over the mountains and you come into the Central Valley, you feel like you're driving into this, you know, brown blanket. They have much higher rates of asthma, much higher rates of respiratory infections, chronic pulmonary disease, you know, things like that. So that's another aspect of this, you know, rising rates of asthma, kids with asthma, and kids really are the most vulnerable because Mm. their lungs are developing. And, you know, all of this, you know, pollution in their lungs, you know, they've done studies on this, can stunt the growth of their lungs by as much as 20%. And, you know, this is sort of this developmental window that kind of shuts closed. And it's not like, you know, as you go, maybe go live in better air, you know, you suddenly get better. That's not how it happens. You live with this you know, debility the rest of your life, which sets you up for pneumonia and other kinds of respiratory diseases. So that's another aspect of it. We are talking with Linda Marsa, who's written a wonderful book, Fevered, Why a Hotter Planet Will Hurt Our Health and How We Can Save Ourselves. So we move on from the vectored carriers to the to the to what what's happening with our lungs, which you consider to be really bad. Asthma bring us to the third. Well, the third area that I looked at is just heat waves in general. And I think that, you know, here in this country, we've kind of gotten a handle on these, which I think is really very, very, very good. There was a, 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 we had a heat wave in Chicago in 1995. And at that time, people really didn't know what they were dealing with or what would happen. And almost 800 people died during the heat wave, and thousands more were debilitated, sometimes permanently, where they needed skilled nursing care because, you know, you're, you, when you're seriously dehydrated, your brain swells, and it can cause neurological deficits and damage. So these were kind of the things that happened in Europe in 2003, especially in France and places like that, that had never experienced the kind of heat that they experienced. This happened in August of 2003. It was the warmest summer on record Mm. since Henry VIII was on the throne. And the French, really, uh, I interviewed this uh, fellow from the CDC, George Luber, who's an expert, you know, on, on the problems with heat. And he had sort of was dispatched there. And when he got there, he said that the the French health authorities had no idea what they were dealing with. They didn't realize that, you know, this could be really deadly. It's sort of a silent killer. 
And, you know, what was happening is you had these elderly shut-ins that were in these little tiny apartments that had no ventilation, and they became seriously dehydrated, and they died. And the same thing happened in Chicago. They had paramedics that were on 24-hour shifts. This is in Chicago where they had, you know, emergency rooms that were just so overloaded that ambulances were on bypass. And what bypass means is, you know, you can't come here. We're full. you got to go somewhere else. And that also, you know, really is not a good thing because, you know, you have people that are just barely hanging on. And if they don't get some kind of relief soon, they're going to die. And, you know, that's the other piece. After about two days, especially if you're, you know, have chronic illness, you know, if you're elderly, you know, and you don't have, you know, a really strong immune system and strong capacity, after about two days, the body starts shutting down. And you can't be revived. I mean, even when they had people in ambulances giving them water, giving them fluids, they died in the ambulances. So that's another aspect of it. And as I mentioned, here in this country, we got a handle on it. You know, we learned our lessons from the Chicago heat wave in 1995. And across the country, we've instituted programs to deal with the heat waves. But in other parts of the world, they haven't. In 2010, you had a heat wave in Moscow, and it was sort of compounded by all these fires outside of Moscow. And I interviewed people who were, you know, living in Moscow, and they said you couldn't go outdoors. It was like this pea soup outside. And the upshot was they lost 52,000 people. Mm -hmm. The morgues were overflowing, et cetera, et cetera. 15,000 people died in France in 2003. And I think that we're getting better, you know, about this. But I think that as the temperature continues to go up and there are people in large swaths of the world that don't have access to air conditioning, we're going to see these kinds of die-offs in the thousands during these heat wave events. Now, here in this country, we have instituted smart programs. Philadelphia sort of pioneered in this. Buddy programs, you know, when, when the heat goes to a certain level, they institute alerts. And the kind of the whole, you know, heat wave warning system swings into action. And they have buddy systems to check on elderly shut-ins. They, you know, dispatch nurses to make sure that, you know, windows are open. They open up cooling centers so people have a place to go just simply to cool off. They put on more paramedics. They staff them with water, et cetera, et cetera. They have a whole series of things that they can do. And as a result, when we had that terrible heat wave last summer... And then you have power outages on top of the heat wave because, you know, duh, everybody's using the air conditioning and we do have an aging grid that failed. The mortality was really minimized because people were really aware, listen, you don't have air conditioning, get out of there, you know, get out in the street, get to a cooling center, drink some water, make sure you stay hydrated. So that's the good part. But in other parts of the world, I think we're going to really see very dramatic kinds of die-offs during heat waves. Did you give some, unknowingly or not, some support to the climate deniers when you said the last time we went through this was when King Henry was on the throne? In other words, that this is cyclical and it may not be getting worse? Oh, no. The point I was trying to make is they had never had this kind of hot weather since King Henry was on the throne. But to sort of answer that question, because obviously it comes up. You know, I have to sort of step back. They've done studies, and the climate deniers, the real diehard deniers, are really only 8% of the population. Most people see that the climate is changing. The only debate now, and it's really just even a small number of people who are debating this, is whether it's man-made or not, you know, whether what we're doing is starting it, and that's only a small sliver. 
people know that the climate is changing and the variance is, okay, you know, so it's changing, so what, to, oh my God, you know, it's the end of civilization as we know it, so there's that. But I think the vast majority of people see that the climate is changing. But to answer your question, yeah, I mean, we have had these cyclical variations, but we've never had the overall type of thing that we have now. The last two decades of the 20th century are the hottest in 400 years and perhaps the warmest in several millennium. In 2012, the Arctic sea ice shrank to its smaller summer minimum extent since satellite records began 34 years ago. It shrank to its smaller summer minimum. The United States and Argentina experienced their hottest years ever. So the point that I'm making here is that, you know, sometimes you'd have these pockets where it's warm in France or we have a a long drought in in Colorado, you know, 400 years ago. But they were different places around the world, you know, and they can look at ice core data and archaeological data and other artifacts to determine all this. But we've never had where we see the entire climate system, where we see the entire weather system just heating up and you're having all of these changes in such a widespread way. And the thing that I find most concerning is what's going on in the oceans. The oceans has acidified by 30% in the last century. Mm. And, you know, to sort of step back, you know, the oceans are the world's carbon sink and they absorb about 50 times more CO2 than the air does. But when CO2 mixes with H2O, it forms carbonic acid which is fueling the acidity of the oceans, and it's killing off seafood species, coral reefs, and organisms that are, you know, very essential for the ocean food chain. And by 2050, they predict that if emissions continue at current rates, and Alan, I got to tell you, we're really not doing that much to stop it. Well, I want to get to that. In other words, I want to get to what the problem is about our getting off our behinds. But let's finish this part up. Yeah, the alkalinity of the ocean will be lower than in any time in the last 20 million years. And it's a change that it's occurring 100 times faster than at any time the Earth was formed. And that I find very frightening. Hmm. So have we exhausted the categories? Did we do category four yet? No, we haven't done category four, which frankly I see as the most serious is, you know, we're going to start having what they euphemistically call extreme weather events. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by that they mean floods. Hurricane, Hurricane Sandy. Hurricanes, yeah. You know, extreme weather events. You know, we saw Hurricane Katrina. We saw Superstorm Sandy. And, you know, as you probably know, there's some debate as to whether climate change actually caused Superstorm Sandy. And, you know, I'm not a scientist, but it seems to me that to have a hurricane, you have to have a threshold of 82 degrees in the oceans to supply the kind of energy you need to a hurricane. So, here you have something that happened late in October. I'm talking about Superstorm Sandy now and outside of New York. So to me, you kind of do the math. The ocean temperatures were at 82 degrees outside of New York in late October. That's pretty hot for that time of year. And then, of course, you had, you know, the Arctic ice melting, which sent this cold front system coming down from the Arctic, which crashed and created the Superstorm. So, you know, it seems to me, but there is some debate within the scientific circles. But what there's not debate about is that there has been sea level rise, which fed the storm surge that was so detrimental that, you know, washed over lower Manhattan, that washed over the Jersey Shore. So we're going to be seeing more of that. And, you know, I went down to um, New Orleans last summer to see, you know, to sort of unpack what happens to the public health system 
you know, because I'm trying to just really focus on the health aspects. What happens to the public health system after these extreme weather events? Mm. And, you know, the the other piece of this is it's not just coastal cities like the Atlantic and, you know, the Gulf coastal cities that are vulnerable. You know, we're going to start getting more floods, you know, in the heartland. And they're predicting and we're looking at, you know, 150 to 200 million people that are really vulnerable to these kinds of extreme weather events. So what happens? You know, you lose your house, you lose your job because, you know, economies are flattened. They lost all of, you know, patients' records uh, because, you know, they, they even if they were kept electronically, they lost their computers. You know, I heard one story about this was, you know, in the aftermath of Katrina, a man who was, was being treated for chemotherapy at MD Anderson. His company went under. He lost his health insurance while he's in the middle of getting treated for cancer. You know, his wife had to... Uh, you know, mortgage the house, then the house was decimated. So they lost everything and they had, you know, all these huge debts. And that's just one tiny, tiny, tiny example. You know, I had talked to the health people in New Orleans and they said that healthcare here remained unacceptably primitive for well over a couple of years afterwards. And 70% of doctors were displaced. Only three out of 16 hospitals were, you know, functional. Doctors were practicing medicine in these, you know, military tents for up to a year or in storefronts. You know, this one doctor told me that there were no labs. You know, these are very simple things that you don't really think about and that we Mm -hmm. take for granted. There were no labs to, you know, sort of test for tuberculosis. She's got a guy in her office that's coughing who obviously has tuberculosis. The only alternative she had is to send his sputum 500 miles away or put him on a bus to Baton Rouge, which is 80 miles away, and then he could infect everybody on the bus. And these are just, you know, small examples. Within a year after Katrina, the mortality rate had jumped by 25%. People who had chronic diseases, they weren't getting cared for. And then the, the other fallout is the mental health fallout. You know, one doctor told me that half of his patients were on antidepressants. Depression was just, you know, rampant. Five doctors committed suicide within a year after Katrina because wow. they, you know, were just in despair. So these are the kinds of things we're looking at. And we saw it happen again in New York. Not as bad, obviously. But, you know, even months afterwards, you know, people are, you know, sleeping on cots in these makeshift board and care facilities that are sort of like MASH units. Visiting nurses would find people with chronic illnesses stranded on, you know, the 12th floor of apartment buildings without their medication. So these are the kinds of things that we're going to be seeing. I have read many of the reviews, which are fantastic, of the book. It's Linda Marsa, Fevered, Why a Hotter Planet Will Hurt Our Health and How We Can Save Ourselves. And one of the things that makes your book unique is that you're giving us this look into what we can expect. And what I want to ask you is, why are we taking so damn long to do anything about this? You say, okay, your answers are predictable. You know, you got to do something about the carbon emissions and you got, but in fact, this society, including this one right here in the United States, is painfully slow in doing any of the things you're recommending. How come? Well, I think there's several things. I mean, you know, to sort of step back, I mean, why I wrote the book and why I wrote it the way I wrote it is that I wanted to shake people out of their complacency Mm -hmm. because, you know, climate change seems like this sort of abstract concept, you know. And the other piece of this is that we've heated up, the whole climate system has heated up on average about two degrees since the Industrial Revolution. In some places it's seven degrees, other places it's a little less. You know, and people think, eh, two degrees, you know, what's the big deal? You know, they don't really understand. 
that two degrees is really a big deal and it makes a big difference. And we're on track for at least two degrees more warming between now and the end of the century, possibly even 11 degrees. Let's just stay with the two degrees for a minute or anything else that we get. Why is it so catastrophic? People don't understand, you say. What should they understand? Well, this is why I wrote the book. And what I wanted to do was drill down, and I found places in the United States, not in the highlands of Kenya, not in, you know, Bangladesh, you know, because it's very easy to dismiss things and say, well, this is a third world country, you know, they don't really have the infrastructure, blah, blah, blah you know, and to sort of dismiss that. But this is already happening here in the United States. You know, people think of, as I said, climate change is this kind of far off thing. But when I think of climate change, I think of that proverbial frog, you know, sitting in the water and he doesn't realize until the water, you know, because the water is gradually heating, they don't realize that changes are happening until the water starts boiling over. And, you know, the frog's goose is cooked, as it were, you know, to mangle the metaphors there. So I think that that's part of it is the complacency. And, you know, the other thing is about two degrees. You know, when I first started researching this book, it was interesting because when I came across this study, that's when I knew I had the book because I I realized that it would enable me to sort of drill down and look at things that are happening in the United States, not in China, not in India, right here in the United States where people are already experiencing the effects of climate change and provide a window into what we're all going to be experiencing in the next 10, 20, 30 years. And what I found with the factoid that I came across is that it took only a one degree change, one degree Mm -hmm. in the surface temperatures of the ocean to cause the drought that caused the dust bowls in the 1930s, which were absolutely horrific. You know, there's a, a fellow, Siegfried Schubert, you know, he's a NASA scientist, and he looked at surface temperatures of the ocean. See, and this is what I talk about, is that as we're tinkering with these climate systems, we're creating alterations in these very delicately calibrated ecosystems. And what happened during the 30s is that, you know, we have this jet stream that goes over the Gulf, and then it, you know, makes a right, and it brings all this water over the Midwest and the Great Plains. Well, when the surface temperatures of the ocean change by this one degree. It didn't make a right. It sort of bypassed the Midwest. And yes, to look at this in a, you know, in a in an intense and thoughtful way, yeah, there were a lot of things that caused the dust bowl. You know, they were farming on land that they shouldn't have been. It really wasn't amenable to farming. You know, they were depleting the soil. But You know, in the 20s, they were doing that, too. But as long as it rained, it sort of washed away all their sins. But once it stopped raining, all bets were off. And I actually opened the book with the dust bowls because that is the point that I'm trying to bring out. One degree change in the ecosystems has far-reaching consequences that we really don't know about. So I think that there is, A, this complacency. And then the second thing is there's been a real lack of national leadership, And then the third thing is that people say, okay, climate change is happening. What can I do? And I don't think that people really know what they can be doing in order to really do all this. So I think that that's a big part of it. And then the other piece of it, obviously, is that the industry, the fossil fuel industry, that has a a stake in not doing anything about carbon emissions, has been very, very effective in sowing seeds of doubt. And, And 
you know, even last night I had a discussion, well, we don't want to talk about climate change because it's political. And, you know, I'm a science writer and it makes me crazy when people say this. And of course, I try and be nice about it because it's pointless to pick fights with people. But this is science. It's not politics. You know, as I always say, this is not a red or a blue issue. This is a green issue. So I think that that sort of sums up, you know, what the problem is. And, I suspect, you know, people don't. I, su- I suspect, Linda, that you're wrong that it, science is not political. It is. Because, you know, if politics is the authoritative allocation of scarce resources and we take a look and we see that there are some people who don't want to acknowledge it and they don't want to do it because of economic reasons. They don't want to have to change how many miles their car gets. And I'm talking about the people who are running the car companies as well as others. I had a question for you and that had to do with you say that the political leadership has in fact failed. Does that include the president of the United States right now? Big sigh. Well, I mean, it's been disappointing. Obama's been very disappointing. I mean, there's no two ways about it. He could have provided some leadership quite a while ago. I think that what he did was a good start. I wish he had done it five years ago. You mean what he did as in uh, the car, car, yes, the speech and car mileage and the rest of that? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a good start, but I wish he had done it five years ago. I mean, we really need stronger leadership. The other piece of this is, you know, and I'm not an expert in this, but I have done some work in this area. You know, I'm not sure natural gas is going to be sort of a bridge to a carbon-free future. And we're, we're spending a lot of money, and I sort of don't want to digress on this, but we're spending a lot of money building up infrastructure for natural gas. And, you know, there's a question in my mind as to whether it's really actually any cleaner than coal when you look at the entire life cycle of, you know, natural gas. And I'll get to what I mean by that in a minute. And the amount of money that we're spending on building the infrastructure and the kind of environmental damage that extracting this stuff causes, I mean, is that really, are we really getting the best bang for our buck? I really feel like we really need to be moving full speed ahead on renewables and doing research. I mean, I would really like to buy an electric car, but I'm not a rich person, and I go out and it's $50,000. You know, I don't have that kind of money. That's where we need to be putting our our resources is to, you know, develop, you know, maybe hydrogen cells. I'm just throwing this kind of stuff out because, as I said, I'm not quite as well-versed in this. But let me just sort of get back to the natural gas life cycle and what I mean by life cycle, it's not just the gas itself. It's not just burning the natural gas itself for energy. It's the entire process from bench to bedside of getting the natural gas out of the ground and using it, you know, in our homes. And, you know, you, you've got to use an enormous amount of water with this hydraulic fracturing. You know, it has to be transported. We have to build all these pipelines. And the other piece of this that people aren't talking about, because, you know, with the hydraulic fracturing, you know, they're talking about earthquakes that are happening, these swarm of earthquakes that are happening, and also the groundwater contamination, which is really a very serious problem. And just what it's doing, you know, to a lot of these areas. I mean, I did a story on what's going on in your neck of the woods, in the Marcellus Shale in Pennsylvania and those areas. And some of these places are like Superfund sites. You know, they've become so contaminated and people can't drink the water. And I'm sure you've seen all those pictures of people setting fire to their water. But here's the other piece that people aren't talking about. One of the components of natural gas is methane. Methane is a greenhouse gas, and methane is anywhere from 20 to 70 times more potent than CO2 as a greenhouse gas. 
And, you know, methane in the atmosphere is much worse than CO2. And I think that we really haven't, when we're looking at, you know, emissions from natural gas, we really haven't factored in, you know, methane. And methane is, I guess, it's a very permeable gas. And what happens is that every joint that you have on those pipelines, you get methane leakage. And I don't think that people have really factored that in. And so I think if you look at the entire life cycle of natural gas, I'm not sure it's that much cleaner than coal. So the politics of this situation still have many sides to them. Obviously, Whoever wants to make a buck, the fracking guys, will do what they can. But then there's the citizenry and there's the greed on the part of the people who want to sell the land in the Marcel Shale and go to Florida. Or the silliness of people who say, oh, no, you can't have alternative energy in the form of windmills because it's unacceptable for us either to see these windmills on the side of our mountaintops where we live or because they may kill some other wildlife like a bird. And uh, we see this fight going on all the time. In the meantime, we're standing there and we're not doing anything. Now, your book is designed to get people to do something, but do you really lay out how they should do it? Well, and I, you I'm end the book. Poet. You end the book by saying, come on, people, let's go. Yeah. But, but I think that it has been pretty well documented by scientists how bad things can be. Your contribution in this book is that you're talking about our health and how it relates to this. And everything comes together. But in the end, if we're going to survive, it's going to be the political will to survive on the part of the people. Alan, I completely agree with you. And I'm a science writer. I'm not a political activist or a political organizer. And the last chapter of the book, I really sort of drilled down into looking at green, sustainable cities, such as Vancouver, New York. And I looked at what created those cities. And I realized that what created those cities and makes them the cities that they are, especially Vancouver, New York as well. I'm a native New Yorker, and there's a special place in heaven for loudmouth New Yorkers because they don't let anybody off the hook. Agreed. Yes, you know, (laughs) they don't let anybody off the hook. But the same in Vancouver. Vancouver is like the greenest, uh, you know, every single indice there is, they come out number one. You know, as as I say in the book, they're like that nerd in high school who killed the curve in every subject and left everybody else in their dust. But how how Vancouver became such a green city is because it had a very active citizenry and a very green citizenry. I mean, I was talking to this one guy and he made a joke. He says, yeah, the last mayoral election, it was a contest between green and greener. So these are the kinds of things that are going to have to happen. I mean, that's really sort of the bottom line is people are going to have to get active. I mean, there was a great story about Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1936 when he was campaigning for president. And some woman came up to him and he, she said, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. And she had this long laundry list of things that she wanted him to do. And he looked at her and he said, make me do it. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to make them. And, and that that is what's going to have to happen. People are going to have to become galvanized. They're going to have to become active. And they're going to have to do it. And the other piece of this is that we, all of us, personally, must really start thinking about reducing our carbon footprint in a really meaningful way. You know, I talked to Pat Mulroy, who is the water manager in Las Vegas, And, you know, it was very instructive talking to her because, you know, Las Vegas is a city of 2 million people. It has 40 million visitors a year, and it's probably the driest city in the driest state in the United States. And 
for a variety of technical reasons that I'm not going to get into on the broadcast, they were sort of last in line when, you know, the water allocations from the Colorado River were divvied up. So here she's got this huge city and it has no water. What are you going to do? And starting in 2003, she instituted a lot of different programs. You know, she started with talking to people like Steve Wynn, who owns several of the big hotels there, and got them to recycle the water from their golf courses and their fountains and all their other, you know, water features. And she also got them to pay for it, which I thought was really great. Then she instituted a program called Cash for Grass. So if you ripped up your lawn and replaced it with, you know, drought-resistant vegetation, they paid so much per square foot. And a friend of mine said, you know, if it was up to Pat Mulroy, she'd rip out every blade of grass in, you know, the Las Vegas area. And then the third thing that she did was they instituted very strict water conservation measures. And they did this in a very stepwise fashion because what Pat told me is, She said, you can't get 2 million people to turn on a dime, so you have to sort of bring them along so that they would do it. But the upshot is that the normal water usage among people and creating water, you know, bringing it to us and stuff, uses up a lot of energy. But the normal usage is anywhere between 125 and 135 gallons per day. And she's gotten Las Vegas residents down to 75 gallons a day, and she's aiming for 50. So I think this is an example of leadership and how in sort of a stepwise fashion, you know, you can reduce carbon footprint, you know, reduce water usage. And that's what I said in the book is that there are things that are going on around the country that we can look at that can be adopted on a national level. Is it too late? I don't know. I wish I knew. No one really knows. I'm sure as a journalist, you've asked that question to many people. Absolutely. Absolutely, I have. And Stephen Schneider, the great late climatologist, gave me what I thought was the best answer in the book. And, you know, he said, we won't know for 50 years if it's too late. You know, we'll look back and say, you know, this was sort of the tipping point juncture. But we don't really know if it's too late. But we have to do something. You know, we can't just sit here and and just sort of let it happen and sort of be paralyzed and panic. So I don't know if it's too late. Do you think science, as well as citizen action, is in response to the urgency of the situation. In other words, along comes the mosquitoes that you talked about in the beginning, the scourge of mosquitoes. And somebody says, well, we, we really haven't worked on this very much, but now we have to. It happened in India, but we didn't care. <laughs> but now we have to care. And so we're going to do that. Or cars are using too much fuel, but boy, uh, we see this one coming. So we have to, we've just got to deal with it. I was just reading that the Prius... I own one which gets 50 miles to the gallon. They're coming up with the very hydrogen cells you're talking about, and the rest, and they're expecting to get 70 miles to a gallon. In World War II, we invented weapons which we didn't have because we had to. You follow my drift? Yes. Well, I hope that this is what happens. And, you know, I always remember, you know, I read a lot of books before I, you know, wrote the book. Mm. And I read, you know, Thomas Friedman's Hot, Flat, and Crowded. And, you know, one of the things he said is that there's a huge gap between what the scientific community knows and what the general public knows. And But at a certain point, you know, it'll become blindingly obvious. And I think that for most Americans, it is now blindingly obvious. So, you know, we have certain choices and we can either make these choices or as Thomas Friedman has said, or nature will do it for us. So I think that this is really sort of the critical juncture that, that we're at. And, you know, maybe we'll do it. Maybe we won't. I, I can't predict that. But I can hope that, you know, we'll, we'll make the proper steps. And I think a lot of it has to do with people getting active and 
pressuring, you know, their political leadership. And, you know, you bring up the, the thing about World War II. You know, in 1940, in December of 1940, you know, FDR gave that great speech, one of his fireside chats, you know, where he was watching Europe go up in flames. And he said, the United States will become an arsenal of democracy, you know, Mm -hmm. that great speech. Mm -hmm. And he ordered, he ordered the automotive industry to sort of recharge, you know, revamp and start producing, you know, weapons of war. And within six months, that happened. They stopped producing cars. And that's what's got to happen here. That has to happen. I mean, we're, look, you asked me if it was too late. I don't know the answer to that, but this is what I do know. The fate of humanity, and I really am not overstating the case. Every scientist will back me up on this. The fate of humanity hinges upon what we do in the next two decades. And so we've got to get moving. I'm so sorry that we are out of time. I could go on with this conversation for another hour. We've been talking with award-winning investigative journalist and author of the new book, Fevered, Why a Hotter Planet Will Hurt Our Health and how we can save ourselves. You can read more at www.lindamarsa, that's L-I-N-D-A-M-A-R-S-A, one word, dot com. Linda Marsa, boy, you've been very nice to us, and you've spent a lot of time with us, and I respect the urgency of your message as well as what you've done here. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Alan. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. been listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.